This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Just gone 5pm at the close. The FTSE 100 positive by four-tenths of 1%. Big gains in the United States as well, up by 1% on the S&P 500. And on the Dow as well, with a pro-cyclical tilt towards the big winners, the energy players and the miners leading the gains on a FTSE 100. In the FX market, sterling looks like this, softer, south of 143 and snapping a seven-day winning streak on the pound against the US dollar. We're down by 0.28%. And in the bond market, to give you a feel of what's been happening with treasuries, yields positive by about a basis point on a US two-year to 2.39%. The 10-year going absolutely nowhere at 2.83%. The pound just a little bit weaker today after some disappointing numbers as far as the wage growth story is concerned. Disappointing in the sense that I think some people maybe expected that data to impress a little bit more than it actually did. In absolute terms, though, it's impressive. Wages in the UK rising at their fastest pace in almost three years. The government saying that annual pay growth sped up to 2.8% in the three months that ended in February. Meanwhile, unemployment fell to 4.2%. The average weekly earnings number year on year, including bonus, expected to climb to 3%. That was the median estimate. We came in at 2.8%. So relative to some expectations and relative to the big gains we'd already seen in sterling, over the last seven days, Sterling just on the back foot, just a touch today, a mild move lower, south of 143 and down a third of 1%. With me to discuss is Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, and Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist. Gents, always great to catch up with you. Marcus, first to you. Does the data kind of validate the Bank of England's stance? Ha! I was going to say, it, it sounds very impressive, uh, 2.8 slash 3% wage growth, until you realise that that's pretty much where inflation is. Yeah. Uh, and there have been... Um, at least a half a percentage point apart the wrong way for, for most of the last year or so. So, um, look, the Bank of England will focus probably on one thing only, which is the fact that the unemployment rates dropped to 4.2%, which is beneath its equilibrium rate, otherwise known as all sorts of economic weird things like Nairu or the, you know, R-square, R you, 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 lots of different things. Basically, it's a point where inflation and, and, and unemployment sort of, you know, get, get uh, into a nasty situation and they think we're at it now. In fact, technically, we might be below their level at 4.2. It's the lowest unemployment rate since 1975. That's all the excuse they're looking at. They think there's a lack of slack in the UK economy. The fact that growth may not be very good is not sense an irrelevance to them, but it's less important the fact that productivity is, is, has been weak and they're worried that inflation will come back rip-roaring, and um, that's really with the very tight labour market is their, is their biggest fear. And um, Richard Jones, if you're looking at the, the data that Marcus points us towards, CPI coming out tomorrow, 2.7%, the median estimate in the Bloomberg survey. So we do have some positive real wage growth of about 10 basis points, Richard. Something to get excited about? Yeah, it's, it's pretty meagre. I mean, look, um, Marcus is right. For most of the, of the past 12, 13 months, 
uh, you've had wage growth of, uh, of, of wage contraction when it's inflation adjusted about 0.5 percent. So, so a 0.1 percent on a positive is 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 a step in the right direction. But if you look at the period uh, in sort of the year before wages started, real wages started contracting, you're looking at 1.6, 1.7 0.7% real wage growth. Not nominal, but real wage growth. And so, you know, as, as much as, cons- as households will be uh, less squeezed than they were over the past year, it's, it's no time to start with the high fives or, or, or uncorking the champagne because it really is meager inflation-adjusted wage growth. And, you know, I think one of the things that's kept, kept the UK economy, kept consumption going over the past, since, certainly since the referendum and since inflation picked yeah. up, is, is uh, uh, borrowing is, is consumer debt. And if rates if rates start to go up, then I think we might see the household squeeze continue perhaps longer than people are thinking. Uh, the uh, the inflation report, Marcus, coming May tenth. It's a very very sort of pessimistic rate hike if we do get one from the Bank of England, because the message that we're getting from the Marcus is this is as good as it's going to get. Yeah, I'm glad you know it's May tenth because I didn't this morning and I was scrabbling around so I thought isn't didn't one come in April until I realised it's February, May. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, thankfully, I had the February inflation report. I know inside out. But yeah, look, it, it's. I don't think the inflation report here is really um, going to figure at all. I think um, there's very little change from uh, last month and the previous month uh, as far as the Bank of England is concerned with their forecasts. Things are noodling around high two, three percent for both wages and inflation. Uh, unemployment is, uh, you know, clearly. Doing, doing fine. The economy is doing okay-ish, and it's really they're worried about uh, bigger and greater things. And I think perhaps building this insurance buffer it, in case uh, you know things get worse, they want to get rates up, and so they give themselves a little bit more monetary policy uh, leeway. Uh, and that's why we will get a, a, a rate hike in May. Everyone seems to think that they won't hike again fairly soon, um, earliest November, maybe later. I think this is a real change, I and mean, I think I completely disagree with it, but I really believe that the Bank of England is convinced that they want to get this rate hike policy. So it's a 50-50 coin toss for whether they go next time, which is probably November, and I think that's uh, the Bank of England will want to keep that mystery alive. Yeah, so Marcus, how do you go about expressing that view in financial markets? Is sterling just sterling stronger through the year? A lot's been made about cable, but I'm looking at a trade-weighted pound that is some way off the pre-Brexit numbers. So trade weight is up 10%, almost exactly from the low in um, um, mid-late 2016, but it's still 8.5% off where it was pre-Brexit. Whereas we've seen versus the dollar alone, it's basically back in the range it was pre-Brexit, bar a little spike that happened before, and you can can almost ignore. So versus the dollar, it's as if nothing happened, Brexit didn't happen. We've still just a little bit over halfway and clawing back uh, on a trade-weighted basis Sterling's drop post-Brexit, and it, but it, it has broken out to the upside. So I think we're going to see more of the same. Sterling um, is is underpinned by uh, higher rate expectations of the Bank of England, which is yeah. sort of newish news over the last few months. And that's, I think, even though the economy may be weak, the Bank of England's on a mission. Yeah, and it just gives you the impression, maybe, Rich, when you compare cable to trade-weighted sterling, that a lot of what we have seen is, is dollar weakness. Much of the upside that we have seen for sterling has been through a weaker dollar. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I think that's very fair, John. I think it's it's very much uh, it's kind of masked the the broader story that Marcus just outlined about the trade wave starting sort of being what a little bit past halfway to recouping those uh, 
those uh, referendum-related losses. And, you know, I think one of the things, uh, I think the thing that's, that most is most important here is the point that you raised, John, is that you have to be asking yourself the question, is this as good as it gets? And that's why the Bank of England feels compelled to raise rates. And if it is, um, it's the growth numbers are not really blowing the doors off. They're, they're, they're actually quite, if you compare them to historical readings, pretty pretty tame and, and, yeah. and certainly lagging behind the U.S. and the euro area. And as a result, you've got to think to yourself, if this is as good as it gets, we're probably in for a pretty tough few years once these rate hikes start to take effect. Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist, sticking with me alongside Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Coming up on the programme, the IMF spots trouble as global growth has the strongest upswing since 2011. In a market sterling just south of 143 at 142.95 on the day, just a little bit weaker, down by a third of 1%. For the equity market, though, worldwide, a rally takes place. The FTSE 100 closes hard by 0.39% and big gains in the United States with the S&P 500 up by 1.07%, the Dow up by 1.05%. And curiously, even with some stellar numbers from Goldman Sachs, the stock trades lower. We saw this with JP Morgan with some record profits and record revenue and the stock trade lowered there as well. The expectations were for a stellar quarter and I guess that's exactly what investors got. They hit the sell button. Goldman Sachs down by 1.09%. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. The IMF predicting that the US economy will grow 2.9% this year, up from the 2.3% growth the economy achieved last year. The International Monetary Fund predicting the world's economy will have the strongest upswing since 2011 and that it will continue for the next two years, but warned the seeds of its demise may have already been planted. The chief economist warning the prospect of an escalating trade conflict as well, threatening to undermine confidence and derail global growth prematurely. Joining me, still with me, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist out of London alongside Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist out of Berlin. Mr Ashworth, give me the reality check on the IMF spring meetings. Do I need to pay attention? No. Um, Tell me why. You never do with the IMF as they're always uh, Johnny-come-lately and uh, you can normally very comfortably fade them. The only intriguing thing I, 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 I see in that they're trying to predict the demise two years out of a global growth thing, which is very brave of them. And I think in that sense, um, I, I, I do think that uh, we should be slightly careful on their view. Yeah, um, I, I would worry as to what they uh, rationalise in it because they're putting it on uh, protectionism. And if that goes away, which I think it probably will, then I think their view will be... Uh, ill-founded. Once their output gaps close, most advanced economies are poised to return to potential growth weights well below pre-crisis averages held back by ageing populations and lacklustre productivity. Some structural challenges, Richard Jones. Yeah, well, I'm part of that ageing population, John Farrell, although my pro- productivity is... is well, by uh, definition, I, I we all are, Rich. Just lacklustre. <laughs> oh, especially me, John, especially me. Um, joking aside, I mean, look, I think Marcus is right. You know, when I was back in my trading days, you never really sort of paid an awful lot of attention to what the IMF said. Um, I think they do raise some some interesting points. Um, I think Marcus is right. I think this whole 
uh, all this this sort of these trade ructions are a bit of a, a storm in a teacup. Having said that, um, you've it, the rhetoric has got to cool down a little bit. I know it has from from sort of the the worst that we'd heard, uh, you, you know, earlier this month, late last month. But realistically, I think. Um, if the IMF is saying that what we're seeing now will continue for the next two years, that's not a bad result because uh, because I think the global economy yeah. has been doing very, very well over the past year or so. And if there's another two years juice in it, and that's what the IMF is saying, then that's that's not the worst result in the world. I think that a lot of people will take that because, quite frankly, if you see some of the softer data that we're seeing in the UK, in the euro area, even in the US, there's I think there might be concerns out there that we might not get another two years out of this. These are all things you know already, though, Rich, and I guess that's what makes the, the IMF quite easy to sort of predict. A huge amount of respect for the institution as an institution overall as a part of this post-war global order that has brought so much stability to the world. The IMF has certainly played its role in that in many ways and a huge amount of respect for the uh, for the chief, Madame Lagarde, but everything's almost so predictable every time they meet, Rich. You can almost predict the Lagarde interview again and again and again and again. There's, there's nothing really insightful that comes from any of this. Yeah, maybe that says more about how uh, how good a commentator you are, John, rather than than the IMF. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, no, and again, joking aside, I think you're right. I think I think the IMF <laughs> you're is great, very reflective. I thought you'd be nice to me, Rich. He is. I, I think the yeah, I, I I was being nice. To you. <laughs> I think the IMF is very reflective of the sort of status quo view. So it's not going to be something where it's going to be the most cutting edge view where you sort of go, oh, I didn't really think of that. But uh, but it is also a thing where where like you say, as an institution, the role they play is perhaps very different than some of the more cutting edge prognosticators and forecasters out there. Yeah, Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist, alongside Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Sticking with me, guys. Um, I'll work out in a commercial break whether Rich was being sarcastic or not. Coming up next on the programme, Jeff Powell's in a circle taking shape with Richard Clarida about to be nominated as the Fed's number two. Why the new Fed looks a whole lot like the old Fed and how much intellectual capital has actually been lost. Have we witnessed a policy shift? And has the reaction function at the Federal Reserve changed in any way, shape or form? That conversation's coming up. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on TAB Digital Radio. A a softer session for the sterling against the US dollar. South of 143 at 142.91, down a third of 1%. A firmer session for the equity market worldwide. The FTSE 100 up by almost four-tenths of 1% at the close. And some big gains in the United States, up by 1.07% on the S&P 500. The Dow positive by 1.06%. For the Federal Reserve, while the new Fed is shaping up to look a whole lot like the old Fed, Chair Yellen is out. Vice Chair Stanley Fisher has gone. And the New York Fed President, Mr. Dudley, is set to be heading towards the exit door as well. They will be replaced, of course, by Jay Powell. He has already taken that position. Richard Clarida of PIMCO is set to take the vice chair spot. And Williams travels from the West Coast in San Francisco over to the New York Fed. So Stanley Fisher, Janet Yellen and Mr. Dudley replaced by Richard Clarida, Jay Powell 
and Mr. Williams. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, and Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist, join me now. And Marcus, do you remember how long many people spent, how much time talking about whether the President of the United States would radically transform the Federal Reserve? No sign of that. What do you mean? It's a West Coast takeover. Oh, wow. Wow. That's a good spot. You've got two people from the West Coast, and my pal probably went on holiday once as well. Good spot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, look, it's um, some sensible people. Um, Powell is uh, less dogmatic than perhaps Yellen might be in the cons or was, or certainly Bernanke was, because they're both so driven by by their own uh, economic theses that... um, it's clearly um, a, a more balanced and, and uh, perhaps a sort of uh, market-savvy Fed here. Um, Dudley's obviously was clearly uh, very good at his game as well, but, I mean, I think Williams is, is, is an inspired choice. Um, he's he's a fresh thinker in the Fed, and um, you need that balance if you're going to have the safe pair of hands, which is Powell, and then, indeed, uh, an outside economist coming yeah. from a money management firm like... Uh, Clarida. So, I mean, in that sense, I don't think the market's got anything too much to worry about. The clear thing is that Powell made it very, very straightforward that he's a safe pair of hands. He isn't going to back away from raising rates. The market is very clear on what the Fed wants to do. It's three to more likely probably four, um, but there's an optionality there. And that's, that's it's you know, steady as he goes, carrying on from, from Janet Yellen, who, who had managed at least to get the Fed very much into the market's purview. Yeah, no one's really accusing him of being, you know, ahead or, or, or certainly not behind the curve. So in that sense, um, not too much to see here. I hope. As I said to someone earlier, no change here, and they said, "Well, it's not Kevin Walsh, so um, so everyone's happy." And it seems to be the takeaway. At one point, we were thinking that Kevin Walsh might be the next Fed chair, and that would be a hawkish shift. I do have to say, before we move on to whether there has been a policy shift or not, and and how the Federal Reserve's reaction function has changed, Richard Jones, all respectable figures that have filled these positions at the Federal Reserve. But I'm sure some of them would admit themselves they are not quite filling the shoes that were left behind. This is the B-grade team, isn't it? This is the B team. Well, I'm not sure it's the B team. I'm, uh, what I would say, though, John, is that is that um, uh, you're losing an awful lot of experience, uh, an awful lot of, of, uh, of um, uh, intellectual horsepower in, in losing Yellen, in losing Stanley Fisher and Bill Dudley. But you know, I mean, I think I think they were they were newbies to this job at one stage as well. And I think if you look at yeah. Somebody like a Richard Clarita, who straddles the the uh, academia and sort of and Wall Street, sort of the very practical, real world uh, knowledge that he has, in addition to, to having been a an Ivy League professor. Um, you know, I think there's reasons to think that that there is optimism. I mean, these are all uh, top class people. Yeah. I also think that um, it does represent continuity. And I think for markets, that's probably the thing that they the biggest fear was that you wouldn't get continuity. That somebody like a Wall would take things in a very different direction. And so in terms of, of market equilibrium and the way everybody's thinking about, about the Fed, this is probably the best result for uh, for investors and for all the different assets. Well, I have, I have well. a huge amount of respect for PIMCO's Rich Clarida. It's someone I know really well and have interviewed many times. Um, I guess my point is you're, you're replacing a man that taught Ben Bernanke and, and Mario Draghi with a PIMCO advisor. Um, and with all due respect, Rich, um, Maybe it was always going to be difficult to fill those shoes. Terribly, terribly difficult. And let's also be clear, when we refer to Jay Powell as Yellen 2.0, I think we're flattering Jay Powell a little bit too much. Um, He's really nowhere near to Chair Yellen in terms of experience at the Federal Reserve and 
academic acolytes either. That's, that's the best yeah, thing about it. They've all got it to prove, right? Yeah, and, and Marcus, as you say, actually, some people might see that as a plus, 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 because they haven't come through the University of the Federal Reserve in the same way. Uh, sorry for interrupting. Yes, uh, I, I think Yellen um, did a great job in certain ways. She started poorly and, and definitely ended well. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, with the Trump administration, you want you want a more balanced um, market person. And I think we have that in Powell. I think that's an asset to have. Um, and away from the neo-Keynesian zeal, which I think has, has uh, transfixed the Fed for too long. Um, that's not going to stop. The underlying nature of the organization is is, is riven with that, and that uh, we've got some people who, who, who understand and, and can work with uh, the framework but aren't necessarily beholden to strictly to a, an economic theory, and I think that's a positive. A reaction function change then, Marcus, with that in mind? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably the point is is that they're not going to be sort of uh, confusing us or you know as Greenspan used to say, um, if you understood me, then you didn't listen properly. But I mean, you know, he, I think that's that's what Powell's all about is is keeping it very clear, very straightforward. He spent a lot of time reading the economic data. He has thousands, literally, of people there to support them all. They've got a you know great background, exactly the same sort of function and mechanism that. Uh, the last three people have. And, and look, they, they'd all reached a certain age. Stanley Fisher was a, one of a hero of mine, and what he did in Bank of Israel was amazing. I don't think he was able to do as much as he perhaps wanted at the Fed for whatever yeah. reason. But, you know, they've all can retire with uh, saying, thank you very much, guys. But then you guys, I think, are perfectly capable, and it's the right time to move to move on to them. Marcus Ashworth, great to have you with us on the program. Bloomberg Adfly columnist and Richard Jones, Bloomberg's FX and race strategist. Always appreciate your insight, guys. So thank you for your time and thank you for giving it, it us here on, uh, on Bloomberg Radio. Next up on the program, we talk about Goldman Sachs earnings. Stellar numbers. The reaction in the, uh, the equity market, not very inspiring, though. That conversation's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. With a close today, the FTSE 100 positive by 0.39%. A real pro-cyclical tilt to that market action. The miners, the energy players... That's where the outperformance is. In the United States, the S&P 500 up by 1.09%. The Dow up by 1.02%. In the FX market, sterling weaker after wage growth doesn't quite meet high expectations. Unemployment dipping lower as well, but that failed to impress. Sterling down to 142.92, down by a third of 1% on the day. A stronger dollar in the mix. Euro dollar looking a little something like this. Euro dollar down to 123.47, off by almost three-tenths of 1%. In the bond market, treasuries look a little something like this. 10-year yields unchanged at 283, a slight tilt higher to the two-year note by about a basis point, so more curve flattening here, 2.39% on a US two-year. That US two-year just moving one way seemingly higher higher, higher on the yield. For Goldman Sachs, it broke from the pack in the first quarter. The bank's saying trading revenue rose 31%, the biggest increase on Wall Street so far. Goldman also reported the largest jump in fixed income trading, and that's where the break came because Citigroup and Bank of America reported unexpected declines there. This morning, I spoke with Devin Ryan, JMP Securities research analyst, who has a market perform rating on the company. Take a listen. 
It was a great quarter. I think um, you look at, uh, you know, this quarter relative to, I think, some of the big banks have already reported. You're seeing stronger results. Some of that is, uh, especially in FIC, is a little bit of a function of the lower bar from last year. So they started last year on a slower note. But what you're also seeing is that a little bit of volatility can go a long way here. You know, we've had 28 days already this year where the S&P has closed up or down 1%. That compares to 7 for all of last year. So 40% of the trading days you've seen big moves in the S&P. And, you know, Goldman tends to do well when volatility picks up. So, uh, you know, I think you're seeing in the results there. And then the good news for them is that trading represents a bigger percentage of the overall mix. So it's moving their needle uh, more than I think it did for some of the big banks have already reported. Devin, the thing for JP Morgan was record profits, record revenue. The stock traded lower. Bank of America, decent numbers. The stock traded lower. The VIX has a 15 handle again. Is this a market looking at the numbers and saying, I like Q1, but have you got the same to come in Q2? Q3, Q4, and doubting what's ahead? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the bar right now is very high. So, you know, S&P 500 was up 20% last year. Financials were up you know, 30% or more. And so we came into this year where um, expectations were already high that tax reform was going to start to uh, really drive numbers higher, that you know, glo global growth would help. And so um, I think there's a little bit of that where investors right now are looking for what's going to drive the next leg in earnings revisions. We've seen big earnings revisions as of now. Valuations are reasonable, um, but um, you know, people are looking for kind of that, that uh, next driver. And so I think that's something that we'll be listening to Goldman's call today to, to see what they have to say around the outlook and you know, how much of this improvement in trading is sustainable. Um, what should we think about this big investing and lending uh, revenue number today? Devin, we got the improvement in trading. I guess we are sort of at the mercy of the weather. Volatility picks up and then these banks start to do well on the trading side. Going forward from here, a lot of people looking for loan growth throughout 2018 on the back of this tax bill. I spoke to Chris Harvey as well, Fargo, yesterday. He said people have got to be more patient. Give it time. It will come through. Is that your view too, Devin? That's also our view. I mean, the, the, the thing is, is tax reform, obviously, um, there's a lot of moving parts to it. And I think it has driven, um, you know, sentiment higher and, and it is stimulative. But, you know, it's not an immediate impact. And so um, we're seeing kind of some, some positive signs percolating beneath the surface here. But I do think uh, that will take time as well. So um, we agree that people need to be patient around the loan growth. And, Devin, after these bank earnings, just as a final question, I ask the same question. I keep getting the same answer. What's your pick for 20? 2018 and they keep telling me Bank of America. Um, Devin, where are you at and what's your pick for 2018? Sure. Maybe we're a little bit different here. We we still really like Morgan Stanley. It's been, you know, a great stock over the past several years. But, you know, we think that, you know, as they're moving that return on equity above 10 percent, that's really an inflection point for the company. The stock is still relatively cheap on our 2019 estimates of less than 10 times. And so we see a really good story there. And then the wealth management business will continue to grow. And as it does, that'll push more capital return to shareholders. So um, that would be our pick in the space. And it's been a good story but we think that can continue here. That was Devin Ryan, GMP Senior Research Analyst, who has a market perform rating on the company. Joining me is Lana Nguyen, Bloomberg FX bond reporter and Cameron Christ, macro strategist for Bloomberg. Cameron, we had JP Morgan numbers, record profit, record revenue, stock traded lower. Bank of America, solid numbers. Total meh was the reaction from the equity market. Goldman today, big beats almost across the board, stock trades lower. What's the signal from the price action? Well, I've noticed over the last few earnings seasons, it's not really confined to financials. A lot of stocks, you get the buildup into earnings season as expectations 
become more optimistic. And then it's kind of a classic buy the rumor, sell the fact. So I'm not sure if I'd be willing to say that it's a function of market's perception of the financials, although there's obviously an exception that we'll talk about uh, in, a, in a few minutes to yeah. that rule. Uh, maybe you could also say, in terms of Goldman at least, that they raised a dividend. And the fact that they've done that would suggest that maybe they don't see an efficient use for shareholder capital in reinvesting it into the business. And they're sort of becoming more of a bit of a cash cow. I'm not sure if I'd, I'd be willing to take that view, but I suppose it's an argument that you could make. Or is it just the market that's basically saying, we don't think you can replicate this next quarter, the quarter after that, that this, this first quarter vol story that drives so much of this equity trading revival for many well, of these banks is not yeah, going to be replicated? I mean, maybe, but these stocks are all well off their highs of, of even a few weeks ago. So I would argue that's already in the price. So in terms of today's yeah. today's price action, I, I I I would put it down a little more towards just to buy the rumor, sell the fact type. But, thing and and Lanan, if you just look at the volatility story of Q1, there was a question for so many people. Basically, two parts: one, either this volatility story bleeds from equity into other asset classes. Or the equity vol story just rolls over. And it looks like the latter's happening and not the former. Exactly. I think you hit it right on the head, John. Uh, sustainability is a big question here. Uh, everyone got very excited across all markets, both in banking and on the buy side, about February's volatility in the equity markets. And now the question is, now that that's petered out, can people still make money? And I think that's a big question hanging over all the banks right now. Yeah, and a big question hanging over the banks right now, Cameron, is a VIX with a 15 handle. Just sort of back to normal, aren't we, historically? In fact, subnormal, historically, at 15. Well, yes and no. The average of the VIX since it started in 1990 is about 17 and a half. But if you look at the most common uh, reading for the VIX, known as the mode, statistically, believe it or not, it's 12. So Interesting. Um, this is actually still a little bit higher than is quote-unquote normal. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a fa statistics are amazing. It's, yeah, they are amazing. You know, in a geeky sort of way. But, well, uh, traders will like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Cameron Christ, sticking with me. Macro strategist for Bloomberg alongside Lanan Nguyen, Bloomberg FX and Bond reporter. And Cameron talking about the exception to the earnings rules. Netflix. Wow. Surging, surging, and then surging a little bit more. And I can tell you, you probably thought the fangs have struggled this year. You might have been told there was some happening with Amazon and things might happen to Facebook too. You might have missed the fact that the fangs are up over 10% on the year. And if I asked you to guess what Netflix had done in 2018, would you have replied by saying it was up 75%? 75% just a few months into the year and potentially one of the biggest years for, for Netflix since 2015. Amazing. Um, that conversation's coming up next. You're listening to The Cable. This is... Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital. This is Bloomberg Radio live on DAB 
digital radio. Netflix proving it can raise prices without losing customers. The company posting its strongest subscriber growth since going public 16 years ago. That's despite raising prices for most of the customers of its streaming service. Netflix added 7.4 million subscribers in the first quarter and sales soared 40%. With me in New York is Lanan Nguyen, Bloomberg FX bond reporter, and Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist for Bloomberg. Lanan, I don't know how much you use Netflix, but wow, just wow. It's huge. It's huge. And uh, the CEO obviously talked about the spectacular content. So that's why he pins this on uh, the fact that Netflix has, you know, drawn people there because of its unique content. House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, Um, not just a vehicle for other people's content anymore. Tom Keane and I were talking about what we watched on Netflix um, earlier this morning. And I think Cameron is sort of um, sort of drew a line between two different demographics. Um, Tom watching The Crown and I was Excellent. watching Peaky Blinders. Um, oh, Peaky Blinders, how fantastic <laughs> is that? Just two, two different places yeah. for oh, Tom Keane and I, but ultimately one streaming but, service but, that served us both. By the way, I've got I mean, I've to bring this up, right? You're from the Midlands. I am. Originally. I mean, Killian Murphy's quote-unquote Brum accent. It's not too bad. It's, it's a little it's a little further north than Birmingham. Yeah, I I, I'll give you that. I mean, he is Irish. So. Overall, overall, they're not too bad. Okay. The, the only accent that I think really sort of, and I really like the character, but the only accent in it that just doesn't quite do it for me is Aunt Paul. Aunt Paul doesn't really nail the Brummie accent. Mm. And for someone that is meant to be like, she's not meant to be that Irish traveller that arrived in Birmingham. She's meant to be a Brummie. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> Aunt Paul's not doing it. Although I like her as a character. I think oh, she's, yeah, great. she's great. Oh, yeah, great as a character. Is Netflix doing it for you? I mean, these numbers are impressive. Well, I mean, I can only imagine how badly the stock would be doing if they actually made money. Um, yeah, I mean, can you I imagine? Mean, the content is fantastic. I mean, I've, I've started watching this. Uh, this they, they're even expanding out into different languages. So on the train home, I've started watching this German show, Babylon Berlin. Oh, really? Which is which is a fantastic story. I mean, obviously, I yeah, read subtitles or whatever because my German ain't what it used to be. But uh, <laughs> fantastic story. So they've got all this, is, you know, as and it's expensive, Cameron. It's the content is very expensive, and uh, not only are they not making money now, there's no prospect of making money at any point. Yeah. really, in the forecasted future. I was going so, through the numbers of what we're going to get from them this year. 700 pieces of original content, including 80 movies. It's more than any studio is going to produce. And it's incredible. And they're charging, you know, essentially they're charging below market rates to the, to the, to the, you know, to the, to the customer. So yeah. does this make any sense from a business perspective? It makes perfect sense from a consumer perspective. Um, but I'm I'm kind of wondering if you know we're just in sort of the halcyon days uh, where we're getting all this stuff like the internet used to be. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. two were both too young. I remember when you could sort of watch TV, you know, stream stuff. Not really stream stuff, but like um, audio, you know, for free. Like ra- you know, radio stations you could stream for free. I, mean, yeah. I guess maybe you can do it again now. But there was a you know, like it was unprecedented in the, in the in the late '90s where you you know sitting in. In London, I could stream U.S. sports over the internet. Uh, you know the audio, and it was just unprecedented. And this was fantastic. And yep. Mark Cuban made a business out of that. Broadcast.com. He sold to Yahoo. Uh, and then guess what? People decide, well, we actually need to make some money out of this. And the loophole closed, and you had to start paying, you know, paying for the service or paying more for the service. And these things kind of 
I didn't guess, didn't I guess, become really I guess great. The big businesses. point for Netflix is whether the debt market will continue funding this equity growth. And so long as the growth is, growth is there, and it goes to your point, as soon as the growth stumbles, then the house of cards, so to speak, excuse the pun, can oh, sort of can sort of come down well, very quickly. I think you know I, that's the ideal scenario, but uh, I think we have to be sensitive to the idea that there are also hostage market conditions. It's not necessarily a Netflix specific issue. So to use another frequent topic of conversation, uh, a company with ostensibly similar financial profile uh, is Tesla. Yeah. That has, uh, they don't have the same maturity profile, but if Tesla debt starts coming under the cosh, then you could see uh, Netflix, excuse me, sort of sucked into the... uh, It's a really good comparison. Cameron Christ and Lana Nguyen sticking with me. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to you all. A decent session for the equity bulls worldwide today. The FTSE 100 up by 0.39%. The equity market gains continue in the United States. The S&P 500 up by 1%. The Dow up by 0.89%. A story of two stocks for me today in the United States. Netflix with some really solid figures. Subscription growth just storming ahead of estimates. That stock's storming ahead of everything, up by 9.4% on the day, on the session, on the year, up over 70%. Goldman Sachs, a very different story. The number's solid. Trading revenue for the bond side, really improving against a drop elsewhere at Bank of America and JP Morgan. Equities also doing really well on the trading side too. The stock just down by 1.43%. We saw this with JP Morgan with record profits, record revenue, and a stock drop there. We saw it with Bank of America with really solid numbers, and the stock just climbed higher by a couple of tenths of 1%. We are starting to see a market that just, despite really strong numbers on the financials, failing to appreciate the Q1 story and doubtful seemingly in some places of the Q2, Q3, Q4 story that's still to come. In the FX market, a dollar that looks like this, stronger against most of the major currencies in G10, including the euro, including sterling. Cable today a little bit weaker, sterling down to 142.92, south of 143 and down by three tenths of 1%. Euro dollar just coming a little bit lower on the day as well. We're off by about a quarter of 1% to 123.49. And in the bond market, just to give you a feel of fixed income, treasury yields are going absolutely nowhere on a 10-year maturity, up to 2.82%. On a two-year note, yields can continue to grind higher up by a basis point to 2.389%, very close to 240. And to round things out in the commodity market, Brent and Tibidi just on the back foot, Brent down by two tenths of 1% to $71.26, and WTI down a tenth of 1% to $66.16. Bear in mind the year we've had up by almost 10% on WTI and up by about 6.5% on Brent so far in 2018. So far this week, as far as you are concerned, we have had the unemployment data from the UK that was pretty solid, but in line with expectations in most parts, with the exception of that headline wage growth figure that was just a touch below estimates. Tomorrow we get UK CPI. Bear in mind where wage growth was. I don't know if there's a read across there for you for UK CPI. It will be interesting to see how positive 
wage growth actually is in real terms relative to where inflation comes in. So the UK CPI print tomorrow. Morgan Stanley coming up. Bear in mind that the equity trading has done really well at JP Morgan, Bank of America and Goldman Sachs. Morgan Stanley has a decent equity trading business, a decent size to it as well. So that's something to watch tomorrow. Thursday, we round out a huge data dump in the UK. Remember, Unemployment today, the labour market data, tomorrow UK CPI, Thursday UK retail sales. So that's the week ahead. To round out with some final thoughts, I'm pleased to say that still with me is Lenan Nguyen, Bloomberg FX bond reporter, and Cameron Christ, macro strategist for Bloomberg. And Lenan, anyone that's been following the FX market for a little while will uh, be following Euro Swissy and 119. Why should I be excited about 119? I'm not that excited about 119. I'm more excited about Donald Trump and his tweets. Um, we're seeing a pattern this week. Obviously, Donald Trump talking about the uh, the other people playing the currency devaluation game, um, yeah. Russia and China, while uh, you know the the U.S. dollar tends to um, weaken on that news. So a little bit a little bit of pointedness in the FX market that's uh, is coming to play right now. So a colleague and, my, and I are looking at this pattern. You know, kind of intervene, get the dollar down a bit, and this pattern repeats over Twitter. Have you, um, have you ever played the FX devaluation game, Cameron? And, and if so, can you tell me all about it? Uh, I have. I probably shouldn't. I mean, I've been around a long time. <laughs> uh, I what is the devaluation game? Yeah, well, I mean, these days it's past the parcel of who, who gets to have a strong currency. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the guys that really, or the people, I should say, that really get the free ride on this are the ECB because... Draghi gets the ump anytime anyone else talks about the currency. But he can call it volatility. Yet if you look at the ECB statement... He can call it volatility, though, Cameron. Uh, That's okay. Well, yeah, volatility... Don't you know the rules of the devaluation game? Do you need me to tell you the rules? (laughs) First rule of devaluation game is don't talk about the devaluation game. (laughs) You just call it volatility, don't you? Exactly right. Exactly right. So it's a little bit of a... uh, Yeah, a little bit of a joke. Uh, But, you know, for for Trump in the US to complain about the Russian currency weakness... Is about you know, it's kind of like complaining that someone headbutted you in the fist after you slugged them. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's the, the U.S. sanctions that have kneecapped the ruble. So should they be surprised that uh, that it's that it's weak? Probably not. Can the Russians do something about it? Yes. But are they obligated to lift a finger to to help out the dollar or you know or to to weaken the dollar? Of course not. But to Lenan's point, maybe that tweet was actually a little bit of verbal intervention on the president's behalf. Does he want a weaker dollar? Is that what we're assuming right now? I, I think it's probably safe to say at the moment, yes, because he's clearly on a on a trade kick uh, this year. Yeah. And all else being equal, a weaker dollar will help narrow the U.S. trade deficit. Uh, and one of the reasons why we've seen it widen on a structural basis or a, a, a seemingly structural basis over the last few years yeah. is because of the dollar strength that was evident from 2014 to 2016. These things work with a lag called the J-curve, uh, and we're now seeing, uh, we, we're now sort of reaping that harvest. So if Trump, with his sort of viewpoint that global trade is a zero-sum game, which is Contrary to to just about everyone else is thinking on this, by the way. But given his viewpoint, it's a zero sum game. Well, if someone else is winning, we're losing. We don't want to lose because we're winners. So we need to narrow the trade deficit. A weaker dollar is going to be a, a, a part of that, as well as sort of wrapping China over the. I just want to understand from this administration what the official line is. The Treasury says there is no 
FX manipulator. The president says that China is playing the devaluation game. Um, which one is it? Well, neither. What you have to understand uh, about this administration is that there are the minions and then there's the guy in yeah. the White House. And the minions, and you know, by minions I'm talking about cabinet level ministers here. Yeah. You know, the minions say their piece, they put together these policies, and then Trump decides that he doesn't agree and he'll say something else. Cameron Christ, macro strategist for Bloomberg alongside Lanan Ewan, Bloomberg FX Bond reporter. Guys, great to have you with me. Appreciate your time. You've been listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.